Hello and welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts that's all about Scotland's history. You never guessed from the title alone, would you? Uh, my name is Daniel. Daniel Downey, I'm your host. I'm a stand-up comedian based here in Edinburgh. And I do a thing in the city, it's called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh. And what I do is I take people around the city, I show them the sights, I tell them the history, and I try and make them laugh while I'm doing it. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because that is what this podcast is. That is what these series of podcasts are all about. Is I'm trying to give Scottish history the Montebank treatment. So hopefully, as you listen to this episode... You'll learn a bit and you'll laugh a bit as well. Uh, today's podcast is all about Mary Queen of Scots' execution at Fotheringhay Castle in Northamptonshire on the 8th of February 1587. The English, they went and they beheaded our Queen. And uh, by the way, England still not received an apology for that. In fact, you know what, right? Since you got to behead our Queen, I think it's only fair that we get to behead yours. Do you know what I mean? Head for a head and all that. Now, during Mary's 18 years of captivity in England, she was caught up, she was implicated in a, a various number of nonsensical plots to try and kill Queen Elizabeth that she clearly had little knowledge of and no involvement in, and that was enough to get her killed, you know? And these days, well, I mean, you know, you can lie about receiving £350 million a week for the NHS, you can get fired from your job as a newspaper columnist for lying, you can willfully agree to have someone beaten up for you, you can cheat on your sick ex-wife, you can ignore your children, you can hide in fridges, you can not attend cabinet meetings, you can starve school children, you can make racist and misogynistic comments, you can illegally prolongate parliament, you can lie to parliament, you can break international law, you can undermine devolution, and you you can be responsible for hundreds and thousands of deaths due to ineffectual, corrupt and morally bankrupt government. And for all that, you'll get an 80 seat majority in the House of Commons. So uh, times change, I suppose. Times change, you know. Now, listen, if this is the first time that you have listened to the podcast, right, this is the sort of thing that you should expect. I'm not going to lie to you. This is mainly Scottish history mixed with a lot of Tory bashing and jobby jokes. If that sounds like your thing, you're going to enjoy it. If this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, can I suggest you go back to the first episode? They all go in chronological order. Each episode gives a, a bit of background at the one that follows it. They're all named as well. So if you want, you can jump in at your William Wallace's and your Robert the Bruce's. You can basically go through the back catalogue. That's what I'm saying. If it's your first time listening, go through the back catalogue. Anyway, so without further ado, folks, here is your podcast all about Mary's execution and imprisonment in England. I do hope you enjoy it. Have fun out there and I shall see you all on the other side. Enjoy! Just as Edward I had arbitrated over who the next King of Scotland should be in 1296, Elizabeth I, she decided to arbitrate over the future of Mary Queen of Scots three centuries later. England would have the final say over what happens in Scotland. Thank God those days are behind us, am I right folks? In 1568, Elizabeth, she set up an inquiry known as the Conference to examine charges of treason against the Regent Earl of Murray and charges for the murder of Lord Henry Darnley against Mary. Mary's commissioners and Murray's commissioners were to meet with a board of English commissioners chaired by the Duke of Norfolk. And Murray, he was more than happy to go along with these proceedings because he knew fine well that it wasn't in Elizabeth's interest to see Mary restored to the Scottish throne, meaning the inquiry was almost certainly going to find in his favour or at the very least reach a favourable glout a favourable outcome for him. And this was despite the fact that he was clearly guilty of treason. The inquiry was always going to find in his favour despite the fact he was so obviously guilty. It was like the Trump impeachment trial. 
Elizabeth, she wouldn't want to see a rival restored. She'd rather they were liquidated and made to play in the very lowest levels of Scottish professional football. This was an opportunity for Mary's opponents to defame her in a very, very public way. Mary, she questioned the legality of the conference. She argued that Elizabeth, she couldn't act as a judge over a sovereign country, unless, of course, they have lots of yummy, yummy oil. Nom, 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 nom. And she was incensed at having to answer charges of murder against Darnley by the very men who were so closely implicated in Darnley's murder themselves. The inquiry opened in York in October 1568, reconvened at Westminster on the 25th of November 1568, and met for its final sessions at Hampden Court on the 16th of December. It was kind of like a, a tour de inquiry. Now, Mary, he was allowed to attend in person to present his evidence, but Mary wasn't permitted, and the the emphasis throughout the hearings it began to shift from Murray's acts of rebellion against his queen to the alleged complicity of Mary in Darnley's murder. It's like how that Dominic Cummings press conference started off by being about his decision to pack his COVID-infested family into a car and drive them the length of the country during a global pandemic for inverted commas childcare, but then very quickly became about his decision to drive to check if he was fucking blind or not. Murray's arguments, they were being presented at the conference by George Buchanan. Now, George Buchanan was once the chief scholar of Mary's court, but he became alienated from Mary at the time of Darnley's murder. And he was now the chief protagonist in the Reformation. And Buchanan was more violently against Mary than even John Knox was. Basically, he used to be pretty sound, but was now a complete and utter prick. Very much the, the Nick Clegg of his time. He was elected moderator of the General Assembly in 1567, and for the purposes of the inquiry, he compiled a venomous tract in 1571 entitled And Detection of the Doings of Mary Queen of Scots. And in this tract, Buchanan, he wrote ludicrously impossible tales of Mary's apparent sexual debauchery, which, I mean, even at the trial of Tommy Sheridan would have sounded far-fetched. To bolster his argument, Murray produced a silver box with the monogram of Mary's first husband, Francois, on it. And these box, this box, sorry, it contained love letters that were supposedly sent between Mary and her third husband, James Hepburn, Lord Bothwell. Love letters being the kind of dick pics of their day, you know. And these letters, they became known as the casket letters. They were eight coarsely written letters, allegedly written at the time when Darnley was ill in Glasgow. And it was claimed that these letters proved that there was collusion between Mary and Bothwell in planning his murder. Although writing a letter to a supposed lover plotting to kill your spouse, that's surely more the style of the British PM than the Scottish Queen, that, isn't it? I mean, come on. My lawyers have advised me to interject here and say that at no stage has the Prime Minister ever arranged for anyone to be murdered, only arranged to have them horribly beaten. So, there you go. It was the first time the letters had ever been seen, but Murray, he claimed to have had them in his possession since just after Carberry Hill. He just failed to mention it until the inquiry. The casket letters, they were never shown to Mary, and there can be no doubt they were either forged or heavily, heavily doctored. They were making up more shite about Scotland's female leader than the editor of the Sun newspaper. However incriminating the casket letters were designed to be, the commissioners paid them very little attention in the end. And on the 16th of January 1569, Elizabeth delivered her verdict not proven on both sides and on all accounts. Murray was to return to Scotland and maintain the regency in the running of the country, while Mary would remain in captivity in England, but with no reason for Elizabeth or anyone else to suspect that she had any involvement in Darnley's death. The Confederate lords were to continue to run the kingdom, despite the fact that they had lied 
and doctored evidence. It was like the 2019 general election. No one seemed to care that the Tories were corrupt, cruel arseholes and they just voted to immediately return them to power. The not proven verdict was very much in keeping with Elizabeth's political strategy. Throughout her reign, Elizabeth would hold off making decisions and just kind of wait and see how things panned out before committing herself. I mean, I doubt she'd wait until hundreds of thousands of people were dead from coronavirus, but you take my point. And the ruling, it was a subtle, cunning piece of politics. A not proven verdict gave heart and substance to the king's men, that is, those who supported the Confederate lords and the regency of the Earl of Murray, as it allowed them to remain in power without any sanctions. But the verdict also didn't completely alienate the queen's men, or the Marians, i.e. those who supported Mary and wanted to see her reinstated as queen, as Mary hadn't been charged with any wrongdoings, and she could be restored to the throne if they played their hand right. In truth, however, the ambivalent nature of the decision, it marked a turning point for Mary, who was moved further from the Scottish border to a new depressing prison at Tutbury Castle in Staffordshire. The ruling meant the King's party were still in government, and it led some of Mary's wavering supporters to switch allegiances to them. But the Queen's party, led by the powerful Hamiltons, were still a formidable force to be reckoned with. As hard as it is to imagine Hamilton ever being a formidable force to be reckoned with. Their ranks were swelled by two high-profile defectors from the King's Party, William Maitland and Sir William Kirkcaldy of Grange. Now, Maitland, we've mentioned on several previous podcasts, he was Mary's closest advisor, but he had joined the Lords after the murder of Darnley and had signed the Confederate bond at the time of her marriage to Bothwell. Sir William Kirkcaldy of Grange... We also mentioned in the last podcast, he was an enthusiastic reformer and the former commander of the Confederate forces. It was he who commanded the army that defeated Mary at the Battle of Langside. But both men were appalled by the treatment of the Queen, who was reduced to just four golden pianos and one private jet for her paedophile son. Absolutely shocking stuff. Kirkcaldy, he held Edinburgh Castle, and the Marians also held Dumbarton Castle in the west. This meant that the Queen's men held two of Scotland's most prominent and impenetrable castles, and there was the prospect of European support, since internationally, most viewed Mary's removal as the unjust deposition of a rightful monarch. It's how Donald Trump thinks the world sees him. The Marian's cause was given a boost on the 23rd of January 1570 when Murray was assassinated while riding through Linlithgow. Assassinated while riding being the most likely way Boris is going to go, you know, unless Covid gets him again. He was shot by a Hamilton Laird, James Hamilton of Bothwell Hall, who shot from the window of a house that belonged to John Hamilton, the Archbishop of St Andrews. The Archbishop took refuge in Dumbarton Castle after the assassination, but when the castle was taken in April 1571, he was hanged in his vestments in Stirling. For six months, Scotland was without a regent until Matthew Stewart, the Earl of Lennox, Darnley's father, was appointed regent on the 12th of July 1570. And between this interim period between Murray and Lennox, support for the Marians grew and they set up a separate parliament. And it was at this session of the Marian parliament in Linlithgow, they declared they would not accept uh, Lennox as regent. A rival parliament declaring they wouldn't accept the leadership of another parliament. Hard to imagine in Scotland, I know, right? In February 1571, Lennox put down a Hamilton rising in Paisley, and on the 2nd of April 1571, one of his lieutenants captured Dumbarton Castle after a daring milk-tray man-style raid that involved him scaling the sheer face of the castle rock in the dead of night. 
In May 1571, Lennox turned his attention to Edinburgh Castle, which was held by Sir William Kirkcaldy of Grange. Lennox fortified the Canongate and he held a parliament within it. That parliament became known as the Creeping Parliament because the king's men who attended had to creep in to avoid being fired upon by the castle. It was a creeping parliament as opposed to a parliament full of fucking creeps like Westminster. The parliament was adjourned after less than half an hour, Boris Johnson's dream parliament because it was under constant bombardment from Edinburgh Castle. So the King's men moved to Leith where they set up a complete government in exile which was besieged by the Queen's men for 15 months. So there was two rival parliaments and these parliaments they spent a lot of time sentencing opponents to death, forfeiting lands and executing prisoners without mercy. One parliament claimed that the other parliament had died years ago so all of their lands and titles were void anyway. That other parliament claimed that that parliament was obsessed with their parliament but both parliaments didn't seem to understand was that people who didn't support either parliament fucking hated both parliaments. And Edinburgh now had two rival parliaments, two town councils, two kirk sessions. It had become a divided city. It had become Glasgow. In August 1571, the King's men held a parliament in Stirling that was attended by the five-year-old King James VI. James wore a makeshift crown as the royal regalia were held in Edinburgh Castle, which was still held by the Marians. And at the Parliament, the five-year-old king made a speech. My lords and other true subjects, we are convened here today, as I understand, to do justice, and because my age will not suffer me to do my charge by myself. I have given my power to my grandfather, Matthew Stewart, the Earl of Lennox, and you to do, and you will answer to God and to me, thereafter. James was apparently even more adept at giving speeches as a child than Greta Thunberg. On the 3rd of September 1571, Sir William Kirkcaldy sent a raiding party of 400 of the Queen's men to Stirling Castle to try and seize the king, and they almost succeeded. They captured many of the nobles before the captain of the castle, John Erskine, the Earl of Mar, came to the came to the defence of the king's men. In the melee, Matthew Stewart, the Earl of Lennox, was killed, and he was replaced as regent by the more moderate and conciliatory figure of the Earl of Mar. He was a kind of old and boring as fuck type guy, like Joe Biden, basically. Marr was another who had consistently supported Mary until the death of Darnley. Everyone seems to have stopped supporting Mary after Darnley's death. It's like how everyone supported Man United until Fergie left, you know? Marr had been amongst the Confederate lords on the battlefield at Carberry Hill and at the Battle of Langside, and he had been appointed captain of Stirling Castle, where the young King James was being raised, and it was Marr who carried the 13-month-old James to his coronation at the Holyrood in Stirling in 1567. He had to be carried after James got pished the night before, do you know what I mean? Like, we, we do start drinking at a very early age here in Scotland. In July 1572, a truce was called, but like a chief Tory advisor during a lockdown, it was violated and ignored by the King's men. The King's men marched into Edinburgh and reclaimed power, leaving only Edinburgh Castle, which was still held by Sir William Kirkcaldy of Grange, as the last bastion of support for Mary that remained in Edinburgh. Marr died of a sudden illness in October 1572, and he was replaced as regent by James Douglas, the Earl of Morton. Morton was the man who had overseen the King's Men's military campaign since Lennox's death in 1571. He had been a long-time adversary of Mary's. He was involved in the murder of Rizzio and Darnley, and it was the Douglas-held castle in Loch Leven where Mary was imprisoned after Carberry Hill. Morton was appointed regent on the same day John Knox died, the 24th of November 
1572. An aggressive warmonger was appointed regent on the same day that a sexist religious zealot died. That's like finding out about the COVID-19 vaccine on the same day you find out about the new mega-contagious strain. Morton was no negotiator. He was hard-headed and determined to wipe out the last remnants of support that remained in Scotland for Mary. He appealed to Queen Elizabeth in England to help him deal with the increasingly frustrating Lang Siege of Edinburgh Castle, which the King's men had been trying unsuccessfully to take for two years. Now, Lang just means long in Scotland. It's like, uh, like the famous song... Old Lang Syne, except, uh, you know, the Lang Siege was less about forgotten acquaintances and more about killing people basically the same as you, but you fucking hate because they practice a slightly different form of religion, which is far more Scottish, you know what I mean? That's what we should really be singing about on Hogmanay. In April 1573, to break the deadlock, Elizabeth sent troops and siege equipment to the King's men in Edinburgh. Guns were placed on the steeple of St Giles Cathedral and trenches were dug across the top of the High Street. Trenches that would remain in place for centuries while Edinburgh Council tried to implement a pointless and expensive tram system. A week-long, non-stop, furious bombardment of the castle followed, from which Kirkcaldy was forced to surrender. On the 28th of May 1573, Kirkcaldy lowered a message over the castle walls. He lowered it over the castle walls because the entrance of the castle had been reduced to rubble. He offered a surrender, but he asked the surrender to the commander of the English forces, Sir William Drury, hoping for more favourable treatment from him. Drury accepted Kirkcaldy's surrender, but since it was the king's men who had possession of the castle, he was forced to hand Kirkcaldy over to Morton. And Morton, he had them dragged down the high street before being hanged at the Mercat Cross, beheaded and his head set on a pike on top of the toll booth. Kirkcaldy, he had been given the option, either be dragged down the high street, hanged and beheaded, or actually live in Kirkcaldy. Naturally, he, he chose the former. William Maitland, he died in suspicious circumstances. He was poisoned, possibly by an assassin or by his own hand, trying to avoid the sentence that had been carried out on Kirkcaldy. Nobody knows if Maitland was killed or whether he killed himself. Maybe he too was a high-profile celebrity paedophile who needed knocked off. We'll never know. The Lang Siege was now over, and so was the last meaningful bastion of support for Mary in Scotland. Over the next seven years, Morton would impose his royal authority as regent, and the only support that remained for Mary was a handful of Celtic Daz. Scotland's civil war was over. Everyone now got on swimmingly. You know, there was no more divisions over religion or independence or our female ruler or the Queen of England or politics or the English government. Everyone just lived happily ever after. Mary hadn't been inactive during her imprisonment. She had captured the imagination of England's most powerful nobleman, the chief commissioner during the conference the Duke of Norfolk. Now, despite having never actually met Mary, Norfolk's ambition was to liberate her, marry her, and launch a rebellion against Queen Elizabeth. He was very much the Meghan Markle of his time. Liberate, marry, rebel. That'd be a great title for Meghan and Harry's podcast, wouldn't it? The two exchanged letters, and Mary even tried to seek an annulment of her marriage to Bothwell, a group of northern Catholic nobles. They raised their standard in rebellion against Elizabeth in November 1569, but their rebellion disintegrated before it even made it to the battlefield. Norfolk, he was sent to the Tower for his part in the rebellion, and he was later released. In 1571, there was another plot, this time organised Norf on Norfolk's behalf by a Florentine banker called Roberto Rodolfi. The Northern Catholics would rise again, but this time they were assured support from Spain. Again, the plot came to nothing, Florentine bankers being the kind of Nigerian princes of the time. 
Norfolk was executed for treason in June 1572 and Mary, she was falsely implicated as a go-between between Norfolk, Rodolfi and the Spaniards. There was no physical evidence, you know, nothing like a, a transcript of a conversation between her and a Ukrainian official, you know, but like anyone in the SNP who has ever had a conversation with Alex Salmond, she was deemed guilty by association. The English Parliament were baying for Mary's execution. They were so desperate they would follow the Scottish leader to funerals, hide in the bushes and take photos of her speaking, socially distanced the people outdoors without a mask on, genuinely thinking that this would be the thing that would be her downfall. Elizabeth, she managed to deflect their demands for Mary's execution, but it was becoming increasingly clear, like an American citizen with an unpaid parking ticket, Mary would never be released from captivity. And if she were, inverted commas, proven to be part of any fresh plots against Elizabeth, she'd be executed. After the ambiguous, not proven verdict of the conference, Mary was moved to Tutbury Castle. And despite not being found guilty of anything, it was definitely a punishment. Tutbury was a crumbling old building overlooking a foul-smelling marsh. It was like M&Ds. Mary would complain of the stinking middens of a drainage system, its drafts, persistent damp and smell, and since Australia had yet to be discovered, it was the worst place that they could think of to send her. It was at Tutbury where Mary would be kept for the best part of seven years under the watchful eye of George Talbot, or George Talbot, Earl of Shrewsbury. Shrewsbury was the fourth husband of Elizabeth Bess Hardwick, who had become a close friend of Mary's, and whose friendship would be a, a source of comfort for her. Mary would on occasion be moved from Tutbury, but when there was even the slightest hint of contact with the outside world, it was back to this hated prison where Mary would be taken. Tutbury was the last place Mary was imprisoned before her eventual execution at Fotheringhay Castle in 1587. A long, beautiful journey was ending at a total shithole. It was the equivalent of getting the train to Wick. After the fall of Edinburgh Castle in 1573, support for her cause fell away to nothing and there was nothing really left to fight for. Mary was now a forgotten queen, considered a nuisance on both sides of the border, the original scabby queen as it were. Mary's delicate health deteriorated while she was in captivity but she found consolation in spending time with her infant niece Arabella Stewart. Arabella Stewart was the daughter of Bess Hardwick's daughter Elizabeth Cavendish, who had married Lord Henry Darnley's younger brother Charles Stewart. Charles Stewart died shortly after Arabella's birth, and the child was brought up by her grandmother, Bess Hardwick. And so Mary, she lavished love on her niece since she couldn't see her own son. And ironically enough, it was James, Mary's son, who would be the source of Arabella Stewart's demise and misery. When James inherited the English throne in 1603, he had Arabella locked in the tower when she planned to marry William Seymour, the future Duke of Somerset. The marriage had the potential to affect the succession, and so he had Seymour and Arabella hunted down and locked up. The pair planned to marry in secret in France. William Seymour made it to France. This was obviously pre-Brexit. But Arabella Stewart was caught before she could reach him. She was locked in the tower where she died in 1615. But listen, it's obviously, it's not like the royal family to destroy an innocent woman's life. You know what I mean? At least not a white woman, you know. At least this time they, they managed to kill her before she made it to France. Things got even worse for Mary in the 1580s. She was very quickly becoming the 16th century Stephen Avery 
Kerry by this point. It started with a fallout with Bess Hardwick, who complained falsely that her husband, the Earl of Shrewsbury, was having an affair with his prisoner. It meant a bitter end to a cherished friendship for Mary and no more visits from her beloved niece, Arabella Stewart. In 1569, Elizabeth's top advisor, William Cecil, appointed Sir Francis Walsingham to set up a secret service to uncover plots against the Queen and to reward bogus contracts to Tory donors and Eton old boys. It was Walsingham who uncovered the Rodolphi plot in 1571, and Cecil and Walsingham were determined to bring about Mary's demise either by uncovering or manufacturing her involvement in a plot against Elizabeth. In 1583, Walsingham's agents uncovered the Thockmorton plot, a half-baked scheme for a Spanish invasion. Ridiculous, considering everyone knows it's England that invades Spain every summer, and not the other way around. News of the plot caused a wave of anti-Catholicism in England and indignation against Mary in particular. Then, in 1585, another plot was uncovered, the Parry Plot, an alleged scheme to assassinate Elizabeth by Dr Parry, a doctor with, connection, with connections to Mary's assistant secretary, Thomas Morgan, who was in fact an English double agent employed by Walsingham. Mary was living on borrowed time. It was now a matter of time before they connected her to another plot. If Mary was caught trying to hold another referendum, Cecil wouldn't hesitate to have her killed. The conditions of Mary's incarceration became much stricter. She was given a new jailer, the strict Puritan Sir Amias Paula, and all communications with the outside world were forbidden except through the French ambassador and Zoom. A religious Puritan who was employed to stifle the Scottish leader, the 16th century's Jacob Rees-Mogg. Worst of all, however, Mary's son, King James VI, he signed a peace treaty with England in Berwick in February 1586 and at no point in the negotiations between Scotland and England was Mary, her incarceration or her release mentioned. James completely ignored his own mother. Unimaginable. Well, I mean, at least it would be if we didn't have a Prime Minister who ignores his own children. Scotland was now in a, a league of amity with England, an alliance essentially with a country who had its rightful monarch and the Scottish king's own mother imprisoned. The whole thing was very Douglas Ross-esque, you know what I mean? Westminster has locked up my maw, but uh, listen, you guys know best, neighbour, the rule Britannia. Mary was an unwelcome nuisance on both sides of the border, and all the while Cecil and Walsingham were still scheming, trying to catch Mary in one last coup that would be her coup de grace. In 1586, they got just what they wanted when one of Walsingham's, Walsingham's agents uncovered the Babington plot in which Mary was implicated. Anthony Babington was a young, impressionable Catholic who was completely devoted to Mary since childhood when he served as page to George Talbot, the Earl of Shrewsbury, the man responsible for Mary's imprisonment at Tiberi. Now, of course, it's very much Protestants, not Catholics, who have an obsession with the Queen from birth, but nonetheless. In 1586, Babington began to conspire with his Catholic friends, and their aim was to kill Elizabeth, liberate Mary, and put her on her rightful throne as the true Queen of England. While Babington was conspiring, at the same time another plot was apparently developing to bring an army from Spain. In January 1586, Walsingham inserted an agent into Mary's group of friends and advisors, kind of mean girl style. Walsingham's agent, Gilbert Gifford, claimed he was a local brewer who was willing to act as a courier for Mary's letters to the French embassy. From then on, all of Mary's letters were being decoded and sent to Walsingham before they were then sent to the French embassy and onto their intended recipients. 
In June, Babington was told by Walsingham's double agents of the Spanish invasion plot and he then wrote an excited letter to Mary outlining the details of the complicated plot. And when Mary wrote a reply that supposedly implied approval, her fate was sealed. When Walsingham's agent intercepted and decoded the letter, he sent it to Walsingham with a gallows scrolled on it. But the joke was on him because Mary was beheaded, not hanged, so fuck that guy. On the 11th of August, 1586, Mary was surprised and delighted when on a hot sunny day her jailer, Amuse Paula, invited her to go deer hunting. And while out hunting Mary, she saw a group of men galloping towards them, and for a moment she might have thought it was Anthony Babington, but in fact... The men were there to arrest her for conspiring to kill Queen Elizabeth. They came in a big group on horseback with packs of dogs, daft uniforms and bugles, despite Mary only being a wee ginger creature on her own. But I mean, that's very much their style, you know. Anthony Babington was arrested three days after Mary's arrest. He was thrown in the tower, then hanged, drawn and quartered in a particularly brutal execution. Mary was escorted from Tutbury on the 21st of September 1586 under heavy guard to Fothering Hay Castle in Northamptonshire, which was often used as a state prison. On the 15th of October, Mary appeared in a packed Fothering Hay Hall for her trial, but it was a trial in name only. Mary was allowed neither lawyers nor defence witnesses. Mary strenuously denied her involvement in any, any attempt to plot or to kill Queen Elizabeth, and she insisted the court had no right to try her since she was the rightful monarch of a sovereign nation. The Privy Councillors returned to London after Mary's trial and on the 25th of October 1586 in Westminster Star Chamber they announced the guilty verdict. Mary was guilty of imagining since June the 1st diverse matters tending to the death and destruction of the Queen of England. I mean if Mary was executed for imagining the death and destruction of the Queen of England then uh, I reckon I could be in some bother here. I'm not going to lie to you. Parliament put a petition to the Queen asking Elizabeth for Mary to be executed and this put Elizabeth in something of a predicament. Executing Mary would mean executing a fellow rightful monarch and it would set a dangerous precedent and would very likely lead to retaliation from the Scots. Don't execute Mary however and Elizabeth would anger Parliament and risk falling out with some of the country's most powerful nobles. And like any good conservative leader, Elizabeth, she chose the option that would destroy her relationship with Scotland in order to placate those psychophobes and the far right of her party. It is what makes Britain great after all. Elizabeth made her decision only when it became clear that James VI wouldn't jeopardise the Scottish-English alliance. She made her decision with characteristic non-committal sleight of hand. On the 1st of February 1587, Elizabeth's secretary handed her a pile of papers to sign and buried among those papers was Mary's death warrant which Elizabeth signed pretending not to notice. It's just like how our, our it's just like how our queen pretends not to notice that her son is a nonce. On the evening of the 7th of February 1587, the Earl of Shrewsbury read Mary her death warrant. The next morning she was taken to the Great Hall where a scaffold had been erected overnight. 300 spectators waited inside in complete silence. Mary wore a long black dress over a red petticoat. Underneath her dress, unseen by the guards, was one of Mary's beloved Sky Terrier dogs. She snuck her dog in, which is what we'll all have to do if we want to take our pets to Europe after Brexit. On the scaffold, Mary announced, I am settled in the ancient Roman Catholic religion and mine to spend my blood in defence of it. Which is ironic because normally you have to give head in the name of the Roman Catholic Church, you know, not lose it. 
Her gown, cap and veil were removed and her ladies-in-waiting bound a gold-embroidered cloth over her eyes and around her head. Mary condemned her soul to God, knelt and placed her head on the execution block. It was a botched execution. The executioner took several swings of the axe before he was able to sever Mary's head and when her head was finally removed, the executioner picked up the severed head and proclaimed, God save Queen Elizabeth. Like he was a northern Irish paramilitary. Suddenly there was a gasp as Mary's head dropped to the floor. It turned out that she had been wearing an auburn wig over her own greying hair. I love how that is the most shocking thing about Mary's execution. The fact that she was wearing a wig and had grey hair. You know, like watching an ISIS beheading video and going, Ooh, cheeky bitch! Turns out she wasn't a natural blonde all along. Mary was 44 years old when she died. Which is probably the most Scottish thing about her. Immediately after the execution, there was a security clampdown. The whole castle was sealed. Only one rider was permitted to ride to London with the news of Mary's death. Every scrap of Mary's clothing was burnt. Every spot of blood was scoured away and anything belonging to her was destroyed. They went full mafia hit mode, cleaning and disposing of Mary's body. Cecil was adamant that Mary not be made into a Catholic martyr and that there be no surviving future precious holy relics. In London, they rejoiced at the news of the execution like Mary was Osama fucking Bin Laden or something. Elizabeth displayed every sign of distress and grief expected of her and blamed everyone but herself for Mary's death. In Scotland, James VI broke off diplomatic relations with England, but only for a few days. For weeks, Mary's embalmed body was kept at Fotheringhay Castle in a heavy lead coffin until eventually, on the 30th of July 1587, the coffin was transported to Peterborough Cathedral where it was buried in a vault after a Protestant service. Mary would remain at Peterborough for 25 years before James had her reinterred in the most magnificent of all of the tombs in Westminster Abbey and it was the least he could do. It was the least that Mary deserved. After such a terrible life, she deserved a good death. Mary was famed for her beauty, her natural talents, her courageousness, her charm and her accomplishments. She was a remarkable, remarkable woman. But in every sense, she was the most unhappy of Scottish royals ever since the moment of her birth. She had the potential to be one of Scotland's most celebrated monarchs. She is one of Scotland's most celebrated monarchs, but mostly because of what she had to endure. Mary was undermined battered, betrayed and berated by those who should have supported her. The Protestant reformers who followed her reign would try to suppress Mary's legacy and only recently has her name and reign been rescued from history. Historians continue to argue over Mary's decisions and actions and more than any other monarch in Scotland, possibly even the world, her name and reign evokes emotional debate. Mary's tragic life ended in violent, bloody defeat after 18 years in English captivity, but still, she remains the most written-about figure from Scottish history and the most charismatic and fascinating of all of Scotland's monarchs. So that brings us to the end of the podcast and the end of our run of podcasts about Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, I love Mary. I could talk about her for hours. I will definitely come back and revisit the Mary, Queen of Scots story in the future. I, 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 we record this podcast. I record it in a wee ducat off my living room and I've got a big poster of Mary on the wall next to me. Right? 
perhaps a tad sad for a guy in his mid-30s, but nonetheless, I do. I love her. I love talking about her. Um, I do. Ho- I hope you enjoyed the series of podcasts about Mary. We'll be back next week to talk about the reign of Mary's son, James VI, in Scotland. And for regular listeners of this podcast, you'll know that each week what I try to do is I try to match what I've been talking about on the podcast with a malt, wa- with a malt whiskey from Scotland. And what I try to do is I try to raise enough money through my Buy Me A Coffee and Patreon accounts to send someone deserving a bottle of that whiskey. And you can nominate someone to receive a bottle of that whiskey. Um, It can be like a frontline worker, an NHS staff member, a patient parent. It can just be a thoroughly sound person. And all you've got to do, basically, is go onto my Buy Me A Coffee account. Um, And I'm asking for the price of a cup of coffee or a pint of beer. If you saw me in real life and you'd be like, Daniel, I really enjoy your podcast. Can I buy you a pint? That's basically what I'm asking for. £3.00. Uh, £4, it goes a long way it helps me raise enough money to send people who deserve it a lovely bottle of whiskey, if you are a regular listener to the podcast then you can become a a patron of the podcast, go on to patreon.com and it's Montebank Scotland, patreon.com forward slash Montebank Scotland and you can basically give me the, the equivalent of the price of a cup of coffee every month um and so to nominate someone to receive a bottle of whiskey you can leave a comment on buy me a coffee or patreon you can send me an email you can dm me on my social media accounts i'm on twitter and instagram at montebank scotland and basically i just choose someone at random and that's how it works uh today's podcast i'm going to match with i'm going to match with well here's the thing mary queen of scots we're at the end of the mary queen of scots journey for now and Mary, as I've already said, is probably my, my favourite figure from Scottish history, the one that I find most fascinating. And so I'm going to pair today's podcast with my favourite whiskey from Scotland, although, you know, that does change every now and again. But one that will, will always hold a special place in my heart is the, the Dalmore. And Dalmore, uh, the name Dalmore, it comes from Big Meadowland, basically, which uh, refers to the vast grasslands across the, the Cromarty Firth looking out onto the Black Isle at uh, Ardross Farm in Alness, where Dalmore is located. And that's basically the part of the world where I grew up. I grew up just uh, across the bridge on the Black Isle and like when we would go for cross-country competitions and stuff our cross-country course was actually around the Dalmore distillery we'd run up the hill there and the whiskey is just absolutely spectacular they use all their also sherry casks for their maturation it's a kind of slow maturation project uh, process they're really full-bodied kind of um, honey kind of taste with a, a, a kind of hint of of dryness and spiciness with that kind of like still got that coastal oiliness in it as well it's just world-class whiskey it really really is and uh, i'm pairing it with today's podcast because mary's my favorite and dalmore's my favorite whiskey so there you go um if you could take a moment ladies and gentlemen to please rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from go on to itunes Give it a five-star rating. That helps. It really, really does help massively. Leave me a a wee review if you can. Like the podcast. Tell a friend. Share it. Uh, Give me a wee follow on social media as well, at Montebank Scotland. And if you do, and if you can, please, please give me the equivalent of a pint of coffee or a pint of beer so that I can send someone a bottle of that delicious Dalmore whiskey. And uh, I don't think I've got anything else I need to ask you to do. Thank you so, so much for listening. I'll see you all next week. And... Cheerio then. Bye-bye.